Bless you guys. Well, good morning. I think that was worthy of a hearty amen, wasn't it? Thank you so much. Uh, it's just a joy to be in the house of the Lord with you this morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. We had many visitors with us today. I even see some families displaced from their normal spot. Um, that is a healthy problem to have on a Sunday morning, isn't it? And uh, welcome all visitors who are here. We're glad that you're with us today. Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 16. here's confession. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to be in reading verses 13 through 20 today. This text this morning in Matthew 16 through 20, we're going to be here for about three weeks. Okay, we're going to be here in this text for about three weeks. There's a lot here that we need to unpack because there is much in God's word that if we are not careful, we will overlook. And this is just one of these passages that if we want to understand exactly who Jesus Christ is, if we want to understand our response to him. We need to understand what Jesus is teaching us here. And and there's a lot here in this text, Peter's confession of him. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 13 of Matthew 16, 13 through 20, but we're going to stay primarily in 13 through 15 today. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Mm. Pray with me, please. Dear Father God, we thank you for the reading of your word, because as we read the words of Matthew, we are reading your words through him. And so God, I pray this morning that as we are focused on this text, as we are focused on this pivotal encounter with Peter, that you would open our minds and our hearts to the same question that Jesus poses Who do you say that I am? Father, we are bombarded with so much information and so many answers to this question that we can be confused and not even understand our confusion. And so, God, I pray this morning in your grace that you would clear our minds, that you would cause us to hear from you directly that you would stir in our hearts all that needs to be stirred and that we would love your son exactly how you want us to love him. Lord, let this time be for you. Let your word speak boldly now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Matthew now takes us into a segue. Um, as the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry turns attention to Jesus' final days, from this point forward 
in the Gospel of Matthew. These are the final days of Jesus' ministry as He turns to Jerusalem. And so from 16 on to the end of Matthew 21, Lord, we're going to be seeing Jesus laying the groundwork for His church. We're going to see Jesus laying the groundwork for His crucifixion and His resurrection. And so from this point forward, all of His teaching is going to be pointing to that glorious event. Now, the theme of His church, and you see my air quotes here, His church will now dominate the remainder of Matthew. And we'll see that here in Matthew 16. It's actually in this text the first time that Jesus will use that idea as he confronts Peter. And today's passage will emphasize really the origin of revelation as his people, his saved, about the beginnings of the church. Where does the understanding of who Christ is and the understanding of salvation originate? That's what this text will help us to see. And so today, this passage is going to emphasize the idea of revelation as all people, saved or unsaved, believer or non-believer, heathen or Jewish, Hindu or Orthodox, Muslim or Christian, all of us must answer an important question. And so the setting in this passage is in a Gentile region, Caesarea Philippi. It's on the northeast border of Israel. Caesarea Philippi rests literally between Israel and the world. That's how this area is understood. Caesarea Philippi is this borderland between Israel and the world. And Jesus' interaction with his 12 here clearly points to the world missionary significance of his church that he's going to be establishing. Now, verses 13 through 28, we're not going to look at all that today, but over the next several weeks, actually the month of June, probably into July, we'll be unpacking verses 13 through 28. And these have traditionally been studied with a focus on Peter's confession. And then Jesus' rebuttal. However, I think today it's important to see that this text, even though Peter's confession is vital, I think it has less to do with Peter, because, but his confession should be our confession. Let's not ignore that. It has less to do with Peter, but more to do with the divinity of Jesus himself. That's what Peter's confessing. And so furthermore, the text will show us that one's confession of Jesus as divine can only come through divine revelation. And there, and we're going to unpack some of that. There's two different ways of seeing this. There's what the idea of general revelation and special revelation. We're not going to unpack a lot of that today, but next week and then following week, come prepared to understand a little bit of what this means. What is general revelation? What is special revelation? And then how does Peter play into this? In the next two weeks, we'll see how this divine revelation actually carries into practical obedience for us as the church after the crucified Christ. That's what we're looking at. Y'all ready for that for about two, three weeks? Verse 13. Let's read verse 13 again. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's the first question that he poses. Remember, there's two questions here. First one is, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Now, we have to understand, verse 13, that following the warning about the religious sensationalism from the Pharisees and Sadducees, remember verses 5 through 12? We looked at that last week. 
We looked at that last week. There was a warning from Jesus to his 12 about the sensationalism of the Pharisees and Sadducees who demanded signs to prove Jesus who he was. Now, Jesus and his 12 here, they actually retreat away from this damaging leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're in a bit of a retreat here, beginning in verse 13, to this peaceful region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was this district of the Roman Empire to be, and it was known to be quiet and restful. It was a place near the Jordan River. It was in the territory near the tribe of Dan. Now, now we can glean here when we look at Luke's account of this scene that Jesus actually sought solitude and rest with his twelve to reinforce the teaching about the true nature of the kingdom of heaven as the church. And that's kingdom of heaven will be established apart from the distorted religious tradition that was the poison leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Luke chapter 9, this is the parallel passage to this. Luke chapter 9 verse 18 tells us that Jesus was praying alone. The disciples were with him here at Caesarea Philippi. So that's how we can understand that when he comes here in verse 13, they are kind of retreating from the danger of the Pharisees and Sadducees to kind of get away, and Jesus has a teaching moment here with his 12. Jesus confronts his disciples with this teaching moment. Verse 13, he looks at them and says, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say? Now, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9, verse 18, says this. Who do the crowds say that I am? And then in Mark chapter 8, the other parallel passage, chapter 8, verse 27, who do people say that I am? Now, we've got to ask our question, you got to ask the question, who are the people or the crowds that Jesus speaks about in this question? Who are the people? In this context, we can glean that Jesus and his 12 are dealing with great crowds of people. That's common in the Gospels. But these great crowds, they came both from Gentile regions and from Jewish regions. Now, chapters 15 into 16 is Jesus working in the Gentile regions. But notice that Jesus does not use the phrase here in verse 13, who do my followers say that I am? He speaks about the people. Who are the people? As this scene takes place in a border region between Israel, God's people, and Gentiles, the world, I think it's not out of order to discern that the people are both the world and God's people. But I think the question may be more directed to who who does the world say that I am as he's talking to his people. In, In three of the four answers that follow here, Jesus is perceived to be one of the great figures of history. Now, just as the Pharisees and Sadducees, remember, they were condemned for seeking sensational signs. And the world, too, has sensational or spectacular opinions about Jesus. Would you all agree with that? There are so, there's so much out there in our media world And even in the church world, there's a lot of sensationalism about who Jesus is. And everyone has a particular opinion about him. We can't avoid it. This is why Jesus is asking the question. But look look here at the answer here in verse 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, 
and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, in three of the four answers here, Jesus is perceived to be one of the great figures of history, either a historical figure reincarnated or come back to life. So what we're seeing here is chatter among the people, chatter among the world has thought that Jesus to be this reappearance of either the executed John the Baptist or the expected return of Elijah or even the weeping prophet Jeremiah. All of these prophets had characteristics that many who listened to Jesus saw in him. Perhaps they were gleaning some of this in Jesus's ministry. Now, Matthew's account of Jesus's question references the son of man. Look at his question again in verse 13. Who do people say that the son of man is? He uses a unique phrase here, the son of man. The other accounts in Mark and Luke's gospel reference Jesus's question of the people who I am. So only in Matthew's gospel does he use the phrase, who do the people think the son of man is? Son of man. Both forms of the question, son of man and who I am, it's the same thing, that they point to Jesus's role as Messiah and they point to his nature as divine. That's what the question is looking at. The, The I am that we see in Luke and Mark is how God describes himself. I am. The son of man here was Jesus's most common designation of himself. That's how he referred himself more often than any other way. And it's used of him some 80 times in the New Testament. We see the son of man reference 80 times in the New Testament. Now, Jewish tradition recognized the phrase son of man as the title of the Messiah that comes from Daniel chapter 7. That's why this phrase is common in Jesus's day. But because the title emphasized the humanity of the Messiah, many of the Jewish traditions of the day avoided the phrase. I think Jesus uses this for a reason. I am who I am, yet I am the Son of Man. Jesus, remember, we looked at this back in Matthew 15 in the re- and the feeding of the 4,000 and, and the healing ministries of the Gentiles. Jesus is not some figment, some ghost, some figure who is somewhere up there in the heavens. He's real. He, he, he arrived in a physical time, in a physical place, in a physical form. He was both God and man at the same time. So Jesus prefers to use the phrase here in Matthew's gospel, the son of man. Now, now, he preferred this title because it did focus on his humanity. Why? Because Jesus is us. He's, he's like us. He's one of us. He's, he's just as human as you and I are, yet divine. He emphasized, but why does he do this? He does this to focus on his humility, his submission, and his humiliating sacrifice on the cross. That's why he does this. His his substitutionary atonement comes from his human role while also being divine. So Jesus preferred this title, Son of Man. Notice that this question is posed at a strategic time in his ministry. At this point, we're looking at about two and a half years of teaching with his disciples and the miracles that led to this teaching moment with his 12. 
These, these 12 and, and many of the other followers uh, of the crowds, they'd been with him about two and a half years at this point. His ministry was coming to an end. So it was not that Jesus was unaware of what people said about him. It was that Jesus sought to give his final exam, if you will. Think about this. If Jesus, that's what he's doing here in this scene. He's, he's withdrawing to Caesarea Philippi to really drive home a teaching moment. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's preparing his 12 to take on the ministry because Jesus knows his time is short. It was from this point forward that Jesus approaches the cross and he approaches the grave. And Jesus asked this question about the thoughts of those who looked on him with uncertainty, who recognized him to be more than just an ordinary man. But they had doubts of who exactly he was. After hearing his teaching and witnessing his miracles, what was the final verdict about this son of man? That's the question. Now let's look in verse 14 and there's the answer given. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I look at these as the some say phrases. Some say. Y'all ever use that in your work or with your people? Now, some people say, and nothing good ever comes after that. (laughs) The answer given, some say, that Jesus is a returning prophet of old indicates I think an excitement, there's an excitement that prophecy is going to be fulfilled here. And there's something in the people they see in Jesus that excites them. Hey, the Old Testament prophets that we have been taught about for all of our childhood and into our adult life, we are excited to see the prophecies fulfilled. They saw something in Jesus here. So there's an excitement in these some say answers. Now, let's look at the prophets that are mentioned here. John the Baptist is mentioned. Now, Matthew's gospel reminds us that Herod the Tetrarch also thought of Jesus as the risen John the Baptist. We saw this back in Matthew 14 in the first two verses. So this rumor that Jesus was perhaps the resurrected John the Baptist or reincarnated uh, was common in his day. Like Herod... The people, remember, the people, they recognized that Jesus' miracles were unexplainable. No human being could be doing what he's doing. So they added to John the Baptist's list of attributes as a reincarnated prophet come again to continue his work of proclamation. Because John the Baptist had a great following as well. And, and, And his followers lamented his death. And they lamented the loss of his ministry. And that grief carried over to Jesus. Maybe Jesus is John the Baptist reincarnated, even though they both lived at the same time and they were cousins. I don't get that. But that was part of the thinking. So from the act of announcing and longing, that's what became their faith. Remember, the the followers of John the Baptist and those who were caught up in his teaching For them, John the Baptist, his ministry was focused on announcing and longing of the Messiah to come. And that became their faith. They got so wrapped up in the proclamation and the looking forward to and the announcement of the coming Messiah that that became their religion. This is seen even today. Let's think about this. This focus on the longing of Jesus' return or the coming of the Messiah is so much in some people's mind that when the Messiah is right in front of them and they can't see him, 
This is seen even today in movements like the Seventh-day Adventists. They long for the coming of Christ so much that they miss Jesus right in front of them or Jesus working or speaking in them or Jesus working and speaking in others. When you are so focused on the longing and the coming, you miss the reality that Jesus is here. And that's the problem. That's why some thought that Jesus was the reincarnated John the Baptist because they couldn't make the jump from the expectation of the Messiah to the arrival of the Messiah. And then Elijah, let's take a look here at Elijah. Some say that he was Elijah. They thought that Jesus was Elijah returned since Elijah was the most venerated prophet of the Old Testament prophets. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 was the prophecy that told the people, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so God's people were expecting the return of Elijah. And the people, particularly the Jewish people, they, they, they longed for Elijah's return. Because this would have been the final sign that the day of the Lord was near. And the return of Elijah would lead to a restoration of the hearts of God's people toward one another and to their Lord. Matter of fact, in many Passover celebrations, an empty chair is set at the table in hope of Elijah's one day coming again. Even still today. So, for them... The anticipation of Elijah's return became their faith. So much so that when the Messiah was again right in front of them, they could not see him. Many today long for the coming of Christ so much that they miss Jesus right in front of them or speaking directly to them or they miss Jesus living out in the life of others. See the consistent problem here. And lastly, we have here, they thought Jesus might be Jeremiah. (laughs) Some say that Jesus was another of the most honored of prophets. Remember, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Jeremiah chapter 9. He lamented over his people. He, He warned and he wept for 40 years because God gave Jeremiah the prophecy that Judah would be lost to Babylonian exile. And for 40 years of Jeremiah's life, he wept and lamented over the reality of what was coming. The people were taken away in captivity as slaves. The temple and the Ark of the Covenant were lost in that. Jewish tradition actually believed, and we see this in the apocryphal book of Maccabees, that before the Messiah would return to establish his kingdom, Jeremiah would return to earth to restore the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of the temple to their rightful place in Jerusalem. Again, Many focus more on the anticipation and the restoration of Jerusalem, so much so that they miss Jesus who is working right in front of them. Yet we have to consider here why the people here thought of Jesus as one of these returning prophets. You see, some of the people must have seen characteristics of the old prophets in Jesus. They saw characteristics of John the Baptist in Jesus' actions and his words. Some saw the intensity of Elijah in him. Others saw the lamenting 
compassion of Jeremiah in Jesus. But in all of these, what the people said, Jesus was to them only a forerunner of the prophesied Messiah, not the Messiah himself. They came so close to the truth but they could not recognize the truth on their in their own power alone. They couldn't see it. They did not have a particular revelation. They wrestled with what we call general revelation. And we're not going to unpack a lot of that today, but we'll unpack a lot of that next week, okay? They were missing the people here who thought that Jesus was one of these prophets. They must have wrestled with or missed a particular revelation of who Jesus was, even though they saw a general revelation of Christ that all people see. But what they were missing was the necessary particular individual revelation that the Holy Spirit gives to his people. Look here in verse 15. And this is Jesus' response. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? There's the reference of the I am. And it's also the reference of you. Yes, this is what the people say about me. This is what the world thinks about me. What do you think about me? Has anybody wrestled with that question? Has has the Lord brought that question to anyone here recently? But who do you say that I am? Not who do you think that I am. Not even who do you believe that I am. Who do you say that I am? There's an emphasis here on confession. Now, Jesus confronts Peter and the others with this direct question. He brings the question of what the people say about him to directly to his inner 12 circle here. These 12 knew Jesus better than anybody else. They were privileged men having spent intimate time with Jesus over two and a half years learning from him, learning things that others did not learn. And so Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, Jesus takes this teaching moment to a personal level. He wanted to hear from his 12 directly. The disciples cannot stumble here in their answer. There is an urgency in Jesus' words. A pathos, if you will. Pathos meaning an expression of emotion, a, a feeling resonating. And you can even see the feeling and the emotion in Jesus' question. Who do you say that I am? This is not just an academic question from Jesus. This is a personal question to his people, to his 12. Intimately, who do you say that I am? Jesus wanted to hear what his 12 felt about him. He wanted their intimate feelings about him. Because Jesus was their intimate teacher for the last 30 months. Two and a half years of following, of learning, of experiencing all that Jesus did, who Jesus was. Now Jesus wanted to hear from his students, his inner circle. There was an emotional, personal indication from Jesus to these men in verse 15. He wanted to hear their hearts, not just their minds or their thoughts or how they responded to what others said. 
Jesus wanted to hear from their soul. The choice of words here, he said to them, can actually be translated, he says to them, and this is an historical present tense, it's in the moment, he says to them, and this is Matthew's emphasis on the weight of the question, it's a present now, if, as if Jesus is saying right now, he says to you right now, who do you say that I am? I mean, we could take on the weight here of Jesus' question. But who do you say I am? No longer does Jesus want to hear from us what our theological studies have told us about him. No longer does Jesus want us to want to hear from us what we have heard from hundreds of Christian conferences and workshops. No longer does Jesus want to hear from us what we parrot from superstar Christian authors, male and female, what we hear from superstar Christian pastors who have large media ministries, book deals. No longer does Jesus want to hear from us what we parrot from YouTube star status, from podcasts, or even, if you still watch it, Christian television now. We all parrot what these teachers and these media elites say. But Jesus doesn't want to hear that. Because that's what others say. He wants to hear what you say. He wants to hear from our hearts about who he is. Because Jesus, he, he's, Jesus, he opens his heart in this question. There's an urgency in his tone. It's unmistakable here. The, the mission here will climax with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in just a few short months. His time is short, and these twelve will face the pressures of being hunted down by the authorities, and the crowds will turn against them and wish to kill them. And Jesus is making an urgent plea here in Matthew 16, 15. Who do you say that I am? He's preparing them. Because these men must know without hesitation who Jesus is, not what others say about him. They must know Jesus as Jesus knows them. That's important. So it's not sufficient here to have just a warm, positive, affirming feeling about Jesus. One must have correct understanding in order to have correct belief There's more than mere natural perception of who Jesus is here. There's also direct revelation of who Jesus is here. And how do you miss that? When anyone knows the Father in heaven, when anyone knows the Son of God, or even knows the work of Jesus Christ as the Son, it's this unaided and unmerited gift of God the Father that makes this knowledge possible. And it's not just head knowledge like data and facts. It's an intimate knowing. Because we can parrot a lot of theological truth about Jesus. We can parrot a lot of phrases out of popular Christian books. We can, re- we can repeat what we hear on radio, on podcasts, on YouTube. And as a pastor, that's all, that's, I hear that a lot. I don't want to say that's all I hear, but it feels like it sometimes. Pastor, did you hear what John Piper said? Pastor, did you hear what John MacArthur said? Now, I know we're studying this scripture, but you know what Beth Moore said? Now, some people don't like, I mean, they say that in the negative, Beth Moore. Okay. She's got her problems, I agree, but why are we, why are we quoting Beth Moore just like why are we quoting John MacArthur and John Piper? Great teachers, don't get me wrong. 
John Piper and MacArthur. (laughs) But why do we parrot that? It's because we're not taking who Jesus is seriously and personally and intimately. Who do we say that He is? Who do you say that He is? When anyone knows the Father in heaven, when anyone knows the Son of God, or anyone knows the work of Jesus Christ as the Son, again, this is the unaided and unmerited gift of the Father. He allows us to know this. He gives us the personal, intimate understanding of Christ. That's the gift that He gives us. But let's remember that it's not mere knowledge of who Jesus is or who Jesus says He is. Again, this is an emotional, a heartfelt, a personal knowledge that we cannot manufacture. Just as Jesus' question to His twelve was personal and heartfelt, who do you say that He is? It's a gift of the Father in heaven. That's what we're going to see here moving forward. Now, we're all commanded by Jesus to declare the same thing, but who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say? Because the truly redeemed by God, the truly righteous in God's sight, the truly chosen by God who gives us to His Son. Remember, Jesus echoes that in His prayer. Father, You have given them to me. These are those whose confession reveals the true faith and the heartfelt embrace of Jesus Christ, not just as a good teacher, not just as a good Bible's figure, but the only Son of the Father in heaven. That's who Jesus is. If uh, Jesus is the only hope of our forgiveness, of our sin. Of Jesus is the anointed one by God the Father who appeases His wrath against our sin. Who is He? Because the only part we play in this understanding that's going to be fleshed out here in verses 16 and following, we're going to get to that next week because we're running out of time. You see, we got about three sermons here. We're just scratching the surface. But I want us to walk away from here today Asking us ourselves this question. Is Jesus asking this question in verse 15 to us? Who do you say that I am? Because we could be saying that Jesus is just another great prophet. We could be saying, well, Jesus is just a great teacher. And not really pay attention to what we're thinking and what we're feeling. And have absolutely no intimate connection with Him whatsoever. Because the only part that we play in this knowledge of God, much less the knowledge of His Son, is the gift of our Father in heaven to us of this knowledge. We're going to unpack that next week. Give you a little teaser. So you have to come back. Okay? See, the point is less to do with our role. This is why this question that Jesus poses tells me that this text has less to do about Peter and the disciples and more to do about Christ. It's more to do about God's work in us, God's gift to us. The fact that we can even confess 
who Jesus is, our confession of the work of Christ, our confession of that truth of God's work apart from us is something that we cannot confess alone. We must depend and have the gift of God's intimate gift of understanding and knowledge of who Jesus is. So why, so who do you say that Jesus is? Not what do you believe about him, what you say about him, what you say will actually reveal what God has done in your heart and your mind, because the words that come from our mouth, what we say is actually a direct expression of what we are thinking and feeling in our hearts and our minds. What do we say? So if what you say is not in agreement here with this passage, I want to caution us to spend some time with the Lord. Perhaps we're resisting the truth of who Jesus is. We're resisting the truth that is revealed to us about Christ, what He Himself did for us on the cross. What do we say about Him? That reveals what we feel about Him. Let me close this in prayer. And as we do, I want to ask that the men who are going to be leading us and serving us in communion come on forward and the musicians. But let's go into a moment of prayer. Father God Almighty, we thank You for this time to be with Your Word. We, we just thank You for the revelation that You've given us in Your Word about who You are, about who Your Son is, God, this, this, as we close our time of, of listening to your word and transitioning into worship at the table, Lord, this is a time where we must meditate and ask you to search our hearts and reveal to us the truth of our relationship with your son and his relationship with us. Has your son Jesus bought us with his blood? Has He forgiven us of our sin? Is our sin atoned for so that Your wrath, Father God, is no longer pointed to us? Is that the truth of us? Are we even thinking and are we even grateful for the sacrifice that Jesus made for us? There's many things that we read. There are many things that we listen to, many things we watch in media that tells us what to think about Jesus. But Father, are we taking the time to bother to get to know your Son Jesus personally as He calls us and draws us to Him? Does He even know us personally? Lord, this is a biblical principle that you've given us in your Word. You reveal to us the reality that we must seek out your Son, Jesus Christ, as your Holy Spirit calls us to Him, we must intimately connect as Christ intimately connects with us. And it's impossible for us to do. So, Father, we depend upon your grace. We depend upon your gift of revelation of who Christ is to us. And so we ask, Father, at this moment, as we meditate and pray, that you would search our hearts and reveal to us who Christ is, but reveal to us our connection to Him, our standing before Him. Are we in Christ or are we outside of Christ? Because this time of worship at the Lord's table is so important. And so, God, I ask that you would pour out your Spirit here at this moment 
and use this moment for your glory. Work in us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.